This week on the Backtable Podcast. People have told me like, yeah, you know, I really just have this idea. I want to have this brand where I sell this, this apparel on Amazon. I'm like, awesome, go do it. They're like, well, I've never done it. I'm like, well, how are you going to learn about it? What are you going to do? And this idea is just like staying. They don't want to, again, from the outside, take this risk. And so what I'll tell them is, do you have anyone in your network or have you ever seen anyone on social media or anyone that's ever sold anything on Amazon or wherever? Yeah. So have you called them? Mm, no, I haven't. Okay. Call them and say, hey, I saw that you've started selling those things. So can you tell me like, what should I do? Oh yeah, yeah, you should get a Shopify account. You should do this, blah, blah, blah. It's literally just doing that or nudging people to do that. And then you also realize that the other person was like, oh yeah, I, I didn't know either. So this is what I did. And then you just realize that everyone out there that have started businesses and doing so many different things that started out exactly how you feel right now. Yeah. And it's just the people who took a step is where they got into more steps. And then just like people say, I made this giant leap. It's no, it's actually, I made like a thousand steps. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs, who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to find out what all the hype was about. I had spoken to my trainer, Josh, who basically said that he uses Athletic Greens to help with recovery from his workouts, and he really thought it helped him sleep better. I now use AG1 every morning. Gopi, my wife, she will help. Either I'll make it for her or she'll make it for me. We'll add uh, 12 ounces of water to a scoop of AG1 with a few ice cubes. That helps chill it and it also helps break up the powder when you shake it uh, so you don't get like that chalky residue. And then I just chug it down. And then I know I'm, you know, chugging a good 12 ounces of water first thing in the morning plus getting all my nutrients. And then I'm off to off to work. Or I might throw it in a smoothie with a banana, chocolate, peanut butter, and again, some ice and some milk. And that's also delicious. So right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtable, I-N-N, as in innovation. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash backtable, I-N-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the episode. Uh, listeners, we got Naveen Goyal here with us. He is the author of a new book called Physician Underdog, which is a great read. I got it on Amazon and yeah, it's about 120 pages. I got through it probably in a few nights before bed. Lots of bookmarked pages because there's, there's so much good stuff in there for, for everybody, whether you're a physician entrepreneur or you're a trainee. I think it's just essential stuff to kind of think about as you navigate the, the healthcare system as a physician. But first, Naveen, let's tell the audience a little bit. I know about you from reading the book uh, and your story, but I want you to tell just kind of a little bit, a little bit about yourself, uh, where you grew up, and where maybe where you trained, and then we'll kind of get into where you are today. 
Yeah. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio and wanted to be a physician very early on, liked science. I'm an Indian American kid. So we like science or like engineering. Parents wanted us to be doctors if we could be. I fortunately was aligned with that because I really saw physicians as intelligent people and I saw it as a challenge and I saw them uh, as helping people. And there were just a lot of great things that I felt when I met physicians. So I strived to be a physician. I went to undergraduate at Ohio State here in Columbus, uh, went to medical school in Cincinnati, and then matched in anesthesiology at the University of Chicago, where I really like to tell people it was a place where I truly felt like I was the dumbest kid there. And after the intimidation, I flipped it to inspiration and just learned a ton and really felt well-trained and got my dream job and private practice back in Columbus afterwards. Yeah. And, and before we hit record, Naveen and I were talking about what a small world it is, the people that we, you know, I'm from, everybody probably knows at this point, I'm from Columbus. I talk about Ohio a lot on the show and, and but what a kind of small world it is, because uh, Naveen is good friends with Krishna Manava, who's been on the show before. So it's it's just great to to connect with people that, you know, from Columbus, because uh, we go back often. And so uh, at some point, it'd be nice to hang out in person. Naveen. Yeah, for sure. We're going to have um, to. But let's jump into the book. There's so much that we can pull out to discuss in greater detail. But what I, for time's sake, I want to stick with some high yield take home points for the listener. First question: What inspired you to write a book, and why did you call it Physician Underdog? Two questions. The first one is: I like to tell people I was horrible at English, never read books, even though my parents wanted me to. I started reading at the age of 30, as in leisure books. <laughs> so I tell people that because I would have been the last person you bet to write a book. Yeah. What changed was several, uh, three, four years ago, a large medical publisher reached out and said, you know, we see that you're in VC and you're an anesthesiologist and we are publishing an innovation and in anesthesiology textbook. Would you write a chapter? For a second, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then I was like, well, I don't write. I'm horrible yeah. at writing. I'm horrible at grammar. But I will tell you, I have a lot of thoughts and I have a lot of passion for venture capital and entrepreneurship. And so I agreed to it. I started writing a bunch of, and by the way, they said you could write about anything essentially because you know, you're, you're in a different space and this will be unique. So I started writing. I asked some of my team members at Loud Capital, to, uh, some of my associates to help edit because they, they look over some things. I write newsletters and et cetera. And after a little while, they said, Naveen, I think we should get an editor because this is a little bit more complex. So we went to Upwork. And, and got an editor on that platform. And I found a, a woman who's done a lot of editing for books and, and some large companies. And we kind of hit it off. I, I wrote some raw content and she came in and we just shared a document and essentially empowered me to be a writer, right? Yeah. I had a lot of things to write, but it wasn't with the finesse that I would want a reader to read. And that's what started me kind of in the writing process. And a couple things that I learned was, number one, I got to process all these thoughts that I had and write them down, which I think is very therapeutic. And it's also brings clarity to yourself. Yeah. So it wasn't just the product, but it was the process that really helped me. And then after I wrote this chapter, I realized I had so much more to say. And yeah. many people, you know, me being a non-traditional, kind of having a non-traditional story, I just had a lot to share. So I just started writing. And after a few months, I said, you know, why don't I write a book? And yeah. so that's, that's how I wrote the book. It was really just the opportunity that I took. And a year and a half later, I had the raw content. And about two years later, the, the book 
So with the writing, because I'm the same way. I mean, uh, you know, I just I'm not much of a writer, but yeah, you have like your. I mean, you have your life story. You have all these kind of you know reflective points based off of the the journey you've taken. Do you just kind of free form, just put it out there, and the editor kind of shapes it for you into chapters and stuff like? That? Is that how that works? So, actually, I would start with um, you know starting this company, starting Loud Capital. Yeah leaving medicine, getting into medicine. And I would just kind of label that and write my thoughts. And slowly we started organizing it into what should be a chapter, what should be a section. Got so it. yes. And and I think the process probably can be different, so, you know, in so many situations. Yeah. My process was, and then the cool thing was she was an editor who was an art historian, no healthcare background, nothing. We didn't know each other. But so she was reading this truly objectively. Like, you yeah. know, as a reader... You mentioned this fund that you raised, but you should go into exactly like deeper yeah. what, like how you did it, you know, more intricate. And so I said, oh, that's a really good idea because I talk and do this every day. Yeah. So she kind of prompted me in certain sections and then she helped me get organized. Yeah. That sounds essential, I think, probably for any writer, unless you've done it, you know, a few times uh, at some point, maybe you can be an editor yourself, but that's that's amazing. It sounds like a huge feat, you know. How many, how long from start to finish did it take you to write it? Yeah, I mean, literally, it was about a year and a half of writing, and then months of editing, and then getting. I self published on Amazon, and yeah, that was a whole like formatting and oh. figuring out, you know. So I yeah. would say it's a two year project, but I you know figuring out these things the first time around was yeah, it took some time. If I if I cranked out another one, it would probably be. A little bit less time, but yeah, it, it was a large project and it was something that was helping me process my story and I enjoyed it. Like I, I'm a morning person. And so after I'd work out and do a few things, I would write for 15 to 20 minutes and it was yeah. kind of part of my morning routine. So it didn't feel like this project with this overhanging deadline. Yeah. And, and I just took my time. Audiobook coming out anytime soon? Yes. And in fact, I, I have all this equipment. I'm going to be recording it myself. That's great. Few folks who read it and know me said, Naveen, you should be narrating it. Yeah. And please do it soon because I listen to audiobooks only. And by the way, I, I, do, I listen to audiobooks a lot too, and I see the value. It's just a little bit of time commitment. Yeah. But I'll be yeah. doing it probably in the next month. Green Lights, did you, uh, did you read or listen to it, Matthew McConaughey? No. It was so much better listening to him tell the story than reading the book. I mean, I kind of, I always go back and forth. That's how I kind of consume books is I'll, I'll read and listen and I get through it faster that way. But I just, I was like, I got to just listen to it all audio because, you know, he's telling his life story and it was, it was so much better than like reading it. Yeah. But, but not all books are like that, right? And not everybody has that ability to, to read it themselves. So th I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm so, looking forward to it too. It'll be a unique experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so why physician underdog? Obviously, those two words usually don't go together. Yeah. But I think that's the point. Many people outside of the physician world don't understand the adversity that many of us go through. And when we become a physician, I think again from the outside, it's like, wow, you end up, you ended up here. Like, great job. But if you ask most physicians today. If you ask residents, medical students, you know, you, let's say you get into medical school, which is a big deal, then you get into residency. I don't know if anyone ever feels like a champion and said, I obtained this. I, I'm like, I'm here. I'm good. 
And, and, that's, and that's just bringing that point. There are still situations, many situations, that a physician is in an underdog scenario. There's a lot of places where you don't have control and you're taking care of the patient, but there's a lot of other people or processes that are in the way. People think, oh my gosh, you're a doctor, you have it made. Eh, not really. There's a lot of people in debt and I'm actually fighting with insurance companies on a daily basis. And, and so it's, it's just bringing the attention really that it could be called professional underdog if I was talking about everyone. Yeah. Because I think whatever you do, you're going to undergo adversity and it's about problem solving. So it's, it's yeah. calling it out that there's still a lot of work to do, even when you're a physician, but I also think it can be a strength. And then that's the mindset shift. And that's like what I like to share is my story about being a physician, my transition, but how an underdog scenario can actually give you a positive energy to move forward. That's kind of how I've used it as fuel. Yeah. And I, I think it's very appropriate. And in fact, like in, even in your first chapter, you give great insight on sort of what's going on in healthcare today, specifically to physicians with this focus on, you know, the downward trend of the perceived value of physicians in healthcare today. And I, you know, we're not going to talk about burnout today, uh, but that seems to be a driving force in that sort of this, this trend that we're seeing uh, with physicians leaving medicine and not always for better things, right? It's just because they're, they're just tapped out. Yep. So, and, and for, you know, the global pandemic didn't help, right? That really put a spotlight on the culture and attitude of how physicians actually kind of have a low value in, me in medicine and a lot yep. of systems. And so can you elaborate on this and maybe provide some examples of where you're seeing this, especially like in our local communities where that perceived value is, has eroded over time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the end, these last few years, especially has accelerated a lot and the health systems were stress test. And when, when undergoing stress, you squeeze what you have. And, and so when, you know, when there was PPE issues and physicians weren't getting them right away, but executives were, you know, people were like, wait, this is really what you think of me on a daily basis. Right. Like when it comes to that rationing of, of PPE, um, when it comes to people getting so stressed out or potentially infected and then saying, uh, like with COVID, even today, I still have people that reach out to me and say, they are making me go back in, even though they know this has happened or this has happened in my personal life right now because they need people. And so they're calling me and saying, get back in here. It's not even like it's it, so, so it just, it strained the relationship and it really showed what physicians are in the whole medical system on, on the totem pole. And, mm -hmm. and it, and that, and that's it. And it just brought, put a spotlight into it. Now I will tell you, I have felt this and kind of have been curious about it years ago. Mm -hmm. But I think now when I say this, people don't say, wait, what are you talking about? I think, I think our community knows that. Yeah. It's a, it's like, we've all experienced it in some way now in the last two years. Um, yep. And you, you brought up some great examples, the PPE thing. I mean, people locally were getting in like fights where, you know, verbal arguments in public over this sort of thing uh, between admins and docs. And it did strain the relationship big time. And Things are a little bit better, you know, a little bit calmer now, but at the same time, the damage has kind of been done. So I want to talk a little bit about core values. You know, we talk about core values on the innovation side, especially because we have a lot of physician entrepreneurs that come on the show and 
And I like to talk about that because it's so important when you're starting a company or a business. You know, some of these big institutions, and I don't mean to like dog on big institutions today, but some of them, you know, they put out these core values, but do they really live by them? Uh, do their employees really live by them? Do they really revisit them and talk about them? Not really. But as a as a sole entrepreneur or even as a physician, you got to kind of establish your own core values. And then when you're looking for a job or looking to change jobs, make sure those values align with where you're you're working. Because when things like this, when shit hits a fan, that's being tested, right? Like you were just saying, I want to ask you about core values in your life and also at Loud Capital. And you have any advice for physicians like making this realization like, oh my gosh, my I'm not aligned with where I work. Yeah. I mean, I think in the end, it's about being curious and questioning everything constantly. And so when I was when I was walking in to my um, anesthesia job, I would go in there to take care of patients. And eventually, when I was in various meetings as I was a medical director at one of our hospitals, we would not be talking about patients that much. It was really about KPIs, key performance indicators. And hey, last month we discussed these charts let's try to figure out how we can just do a better job on these numbers. And you slowly start to see that the focus on taking care of people is farther and farther away, but it's really like these mm -hmm. metrics. Yeah. So I will talk, it's more systemic. And so I, as controversial as this sounds, most people are not evil, even though some people are really angry at, at these medical systems, et cetera, but they're incentivized in a certain way. And so when we talk about core values and culture, and also, uh, I, but I will pick on some big corporations. There's a lot of nonprofit healthcare systems that have billions of dollars sitting in their bank. And yet they are nickel and diming their staff, their physicians. They're claiming that they care about patients, but there's wait lists and lines and people in the healthcare system that don't have access to their systems because it's lower on the totem poles. For example, uh, let's talk about dental, right? So like you have these, kids who have dental disease, especially let's say on Medicaid. Yeah. Nine to 12 month wait to get extracted here in Ohio, 22 to 24 months if you're in Chicago. In the USA in 2022, that's today. Yeah. And so when you have a high cost center as an operate, of an operating room, you need to pay for it and you need to make profit off of it, but you will not make profit on dental. You will not make profit on Medicaid. And so it's very low on the totem pole. But yet if our goal is to take care of people, what are we doing about that? I'd, I don't see a lot of action on that. It's really just, okay, let's try to get our high pain cases in the operating room here. And again, yeah. I'm not picking on anyone particular in those medical systems because they're all incentivized differently. Right. But when you hear core values of patient care and trust and responsibility, it's, it's just, it's, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like garbage. Just, it's like garbage. Yeah. So my personal values, what I realized was I, I do care when I, when I wake up early in the morning, when I used to wake up early in the morning to go to the operating room, yeah. is that I'm working when everyone is focused ultimately on the patient. And listen, I'm not the altruistic person in the room here out of everybody. All I'm saying is I, I see what gives me energy and what fulfills me. Yeah. And if, if you can do that, you can make money for yourself and you can be happy and, and you can smile. But I, I just felt 80% of my time was had nothing to do with the patient. It was arguing for supplies. It was, you know, figuring out the EMR system still where technology is helping me order a pizza really easy when I'm at home. But when I go into work, I can barely like 
Function. have technology help me versus fight me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your original question was core values. I mean, my core values is I believe in optimizing the people around me. That's really important to me. I think from a leadership perspective, I've really fallen into that. I didn't know that day one, but I know that now. And what I believe is sounds kind of nerdy, but I believe that if you can optimize the people around you, which in turn optimizes yourself, then you can literally make the world a way better place. Mm -hmm. Such a simple thing. But if everyone was able to do that today, there's a lot of issues that can go away. Yeah. I think that's solid advice. Can you give an example of optimizing the people around you? Yeah. So I've co-founded a couple of businesses now, one SmileMD, Offer Health, which was in 2014, now known as a mobile healthcare system. We have about 110 employees. Uh, we're in four states about to enter our fifth in Texas, actually. And then I co-founded Loud Capital a year later, which we have about 20 folks in the organization. We're here in Columbus and Chicago and Raleigh, North Carolina. And, and I say that because, you know, from scratch built a company of how I would want it. And what I've realized is I spend a lot of time, I don't want to say a lot of time, I spend a decent amount of time connecting with each person. Now, granted, we're talking, this is a small, smaller companies, but you realize there's a lot of things that people are going through personally, professionally. So let's say professionally, people, like what, what are your goals here? What are your goals? Okay, well, I'm actually, I wanted a job with a good culture and I'm happy here. And I think right now my voice is heard. And, and, and so my point is, it's spending time with people to make sure that they're not only doing the work, a quote unquote work that you recruited them or employ them to do, yeah. but that they're growing and kind of feeling like they're a part of the team. That sounds so simple. Right. But it's hard. It, it's hard. And, and that's why I've even like really been working hard on learning more about how to be a better leader, how to increase my empathy level. Um, and, and so it's really about caring for people. So I've seen that in my own two organizations of people being fulfilled, people feeling like they're growing. And it doesn't mean just taking another position, growing meaning, hey, I'm actually helping and seeing the direct impact and I'm really happy. And I go yeah. home to my family and they've even said that they've noticed a, a change. And so yeah. those are prime, ex a, a couple like examples of how I feel like when you have really strong leadership that is empathetic and cares about the people around them, that does funnel out to other people as, wait, wh why is my organization not like that? I don't feel like I'm going into something where I feel like I'm positively impacting people. Uh, and we're not, we're, right now we're not talking about benefits. We're not talking about the salary. We're not talking about work from home or other things. Those are very important, by the way. But I think the differentiators come to how you treat people and how they feel coming into their work. Yeah, I think that, um, that, that those are some great examples of, like you said, how to optimize and, and really empower people around you will in turn empower yourself. Let's take a, a sidestep here and talk a little bit about the importance of awareness, because this is something that I didn't really think about much. And then I was reading, you have like a whole chapter about it. And um, I'm going to actually pull out something that you wrote on page 113, where you talked about awareness. What I, when you say, what I'm speaking about is an awareness that when we physicians want a change to happen or want to influence how patients are taken care of, 
we are set up to be very limited in our input. That was an awareness. And you touch on this in your books in several places. For example, like when we're on these hospital committees, like for example, a you know, medical executive committee or a departmental committee, oftentimes you go to these meetings and it seems like the administrative players have already made decisions. Like you're just there as a, as a formality, right? And so I wanted to, you know, I wanted you to kind of share this experience because I know that you made this realization and you made it very important for the reader to understand this and how important this is in empowering themselves. Yeah. So I'll give you an example, you know, being an anesthesiologist and, and working in the ORs uh, and running the ORs, it was, you know, hey, we have these operating room policies where we don't take elective surgeries after this time. And so we would be running the OR, but then somehow there'd be, let's say, a few surgeons that are, are coming in late and, and doing their thing. And they would just say, oh, no, just, just let it go. Just let it go. And it would, you know, our job is to run the ORs and, and, and make it efficient. And we would have to hold people back and, and do all these things. And, and you're, you're like, what is going on here? Like I'm in these meetings. I, I was medical director at the time. And I realized that there was just all these one-off agreements with either the surgeons or other things that did not include myself as the medical director that were, again, had nothing to do with, hey, this is against anesthesia or this is only for these couple of surgeons running these operating rooms. It, it was a bigger deal. It was a bigger, hey, this is the package we promised them and we really didn't communicate this to you, but you don't need to know this, right? And so, and, and by the way, they didn't, they didn't say that directly to me, you don't need to know this, but you know, just kind of starting to really look how things were working. Um, and I'm going to just say one more example. I'm sure there's any physicians that, that is listening right now, if you've ever wanted certain supplies or certain equipment near you or by you or in a situation and you're, you're getting frustrated and upset, and you're like, why don't I have this here? And the people in the room you feel can get you that and change the way things happen in the future, but that's not the truth. There's actually 10 layers above you that they decided they allocated a certain budget and that only this equipment is going to be for every five rooms, let's say, right? Like, let's say a glide scope or something like in, in an ICU. And it's just those things that we should be aware of that number one, there's a lot of layers above us. Yeah. Number two, a lot of it does have to do with we are allotting a certain budget to equipment that certain physicians or let's say these physician groups can utilize. It wasn't anything specifically against us as anesthesiologists and like, you can't use this GlideScope or no, there's too many. It just has to do with costs and money mm -hmm. and again, KPIs. And there's a lot of executives in very different buildings, perhaps, that are making those decisions. Yeah. And so if, you know, once you're aware of that, you can be frustrated when you're in that room, but you're barking at the wrong folks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's just a couple of examples of being aware of that and, and, for me, what it did, it was frustrating, but it was a different sense of frustration. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to be frustrated because of this piece of equipment. I'm going to be frustrated because of this structure right now. Like, who yeah. the heck am I? I'm a medical director, but am I really anything right now? And yeah. after you start questioning and we're smart people and we're ambitious people, I just started really thinking and I felt at some point, what am I doing here? Why am I committing my energy and my time and my brain trust to a process that's not really letting me input, right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, that is a big core of why I am here. Because in, in the entrepreneurial world, I built my own businesses where I'm 
I'm saying something or inputting something and I'm seeing change, whether it succeeds or fails, but there's something fulfilling about that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you as an entrepreneur can see a pain point and take action and have an impact, right? And, and the frustration that we feel as docs in these hospitals where you have a pain point, you, you, you try to give input and you see nothing. And that's just a recurring cycle over and over again. And it's just, I mean, it, it's kind of debilitating. I mean, it, it really make that, you know, it, it's really kind of depressing actually. Um, and so that leads us to kind of talking a little bit about, okay, well, how, how do we empower ourselves? How do we find a way to make that change? And so I wanted to pull out another quote from your, one of your contributors, which I found particularly useful as I enter my sort of middle age career stage. And uh, admittedly, uh, you know, I think that I enter a stage where my perception of how I want to contribute to medicine is a little bit different. It's not pure clinical work. And this is from Marshall Karemsky. He says, consider this, your doctorate of medicine is a platform, an opportunity, a stepping stone with few equals. Well, you certainly can and most will use it primarily for practicing medicine and helping patients, but there are many other things you can do with it. You can use it as a springboard for something different. You will always be uniquely positioned because of who you are, your education, and your skill set, which includes empathy, dedication, and a desire to help others. And I think that, so that was his quote, which I think was great too, that you included that in the book. Um, and we get so tied up in the granular, granular of our day-to-day, -day, these little issues, these little pain points, and our, you know, we, we hear a fellow physician give that kind of advice. And I think that that right there is empowering to kind of sit back and reflect and be like, wow, he's right. I mean, I'm highly trained. I have empathy. I have all these skills. What else can I do? Right. And so can, can you talk about the need for empowerment and, and how we help each other to get out, kind of get out of this rut? Yeah. So uh, he, he said that very well. And, and I, I try to let people know and remind our community of that. And so you are all hardworking, credible people who have Yes, a degree, but you also have a place where you're truly um, a healer of people as you know, as known worldwide. And, and so that's not for ego. That's just for empowerment for yourself. Because sometimes when you're in the grind and you're, again, having adversity with, let's say, staff or just a rough day, you forget yeah. that all this hard work was not just to avoid those bad days. That all that hard work is sitting there waiting to be leveraged. And most right. folks in our community do not look at it as leverage. And what I mean is you have earned the right to open different doors if you choose to. And many of us think that the clinical doors or just the the doors that are are we see. So let's say you're a, a radiologist and you're working hard and you're having adversity in your group. And you're like, gosh, this work, this job is just not for me. And so people are just looking at other radiology jobs in that same, you know, kind of clinical structure. What you didn't realize is though, that there's a lot of people who need a radiologist specifically, let's say you're in your niche, whether it's a, a company doing innovation, whether it's um, a company who's building some things and they want an advisor. And so many of us have not even thought about that. Yeah. And, and by the way, I understand it's, it's, it's not in sight and it's not easy to connect, which by the way, that's what I'm working on right now is, is to be able to, for anyone in the world to connect with our physician community and make, make things happen. Yeah. And so since we don't know about those doors 
that aren't in front of us, we think our value is actually less than what we really are. And so it's just resetting and saying, and, and you know, maybe it's also when I came out and left clinical practice and now I do venture capital and entrepreneurship and I have a lot of folks reaching out, physicians and non-physicians, you realize that they're like, wow, you're this physician. So you have this like layer of trust and credibility mm-hmm. and you use that to your, to, to get you indoors. I mean, people know that you've worked your whole life to help people. How many people can say that? And, and all I'm saying is that, you know, there are plenty of people who haven't spent that time or are gone that route who have that confidence in them. And yeah. when I look at physicians, sometimes people look beat down. They're not confident at all. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's, I think it's also a specialization thing where we get really in the nitty gritty we become experts in our field. And then we, we think that every, every other pathway you need to be an expert in. And so we start doubting ourselves. And then we have lower confidence than in like a college dropout. And, yeah. and, and I'm yeah. going to give you an example. If you talk about a, a tech company and you bring a tech company, you bring it to a college dropout and you bring it to a practicing physician. The college dropout, the physician know nothing about technology, but it's a startup, there's some funding and you have the ability to try something out. Who do you think has more confidence? Right, that guy. The, the, the college dropout will have more confidence than the physician. Now, yeah. if you take a step back, think about that. You're this like proven person. You've, proved, you've proven to yourself and others that you can learn a crazy amount of information. You've proven to others that you can take care of people in crazy clinical scenarios. And you even have a degree that proves it, that, that you're a smart person. So- why does this college dropout have more confidence than you? It's because we've kind of beat down ourselves. The systems beat us down that we only know and are only experts in this, that maybe our capabilities are less than others, but that's completely opposite. It's actually, you've proven to you and others that you can do a lot of things. And so you should at least have the same amount of confidence as you had right when you entered medical school. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about risk because it's confidence, but it's also physicians are so risk averse, right? What you get, you, you build and you grow this practice and you get out in practice and you don't want to get sued. You don't want to, you, you're so risk averse because you've been hardwired to become that way, right? Through training. And I think that's the other thing is like, it's a lack of confidence, but it's also the, you know, we we just don't... we're so in our safe spot that we don't want to go outside. And uh, can you touch about that? Like, you know, try, I imagine in, in your world, like trying to get docs that have great ideas to kind of take that risk. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And so, you know, when we say the word risk, I feel like it really, it sounds tougher to swallow than if you use the word, get uncomfortable. Yeah. And so let's start with get uncomfortable because when I think about risk in in the physician world, it's like, oh my God, there's risk and there's legal and like, I'm going to affect my potential uh, clinical career. It's, it's like, it's this association. So I, I, I respect the word risk and I use it a lot, but like for this conversation, let's just use discomfort. Yeah. It's about, let's say about learning something completely new. So we're not talking about medicine. We're talking about let's say, let's say starting a business. And so most people have not had any, not that you would need formal training. Uh, and I feel strongly about that. We can talk about that 
uh, all day, but you've proven that you can learn anything. So if you haven't learned something about business, the first thing I'll hear from physicians, well, I don't, I don't really know anything about it. I'm like, okay, you're right. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, wait, what are you going to do about it? And so that is taking risk by going into an area to learn, even though you're picking up a book or look, listen to some great podcasts or you're, you know, watching some short videos to learn about business. In the end, you learn a little bit and then the risk is taking a step. Yeah. The risk is not thinking about growing this business and, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm thinking about litigation or, or raising money and, and all this risky stuff. No, 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 no. The risk is taking a step and taking mm-hmm. a step could be as simple as, I, I don't know if I should say pick up the phone anymore because I don't know if there's really, we, we do that. We can text or we can, you know, but having a live conversation with someone on yeah. the other end about this. So let's say you're a business and you want to uh, start selling amazing sweatshirts on Amazon. Yeah. Your own brand. And uh, people have told me like, yeah, you know, I really just have this idea. I want to have this brand where I sell this, uh, this apparel on Amazon. I'm like, awesome. I'm like, go do it. They're like, well, I've never done it. I'm like, well, how are you going to learn about it? What are you going to do? Yeah. And this idea is just like staying. They don't want to, again, from the outside, take this risk. And so what I'll tell them is, do you have anyone in your network or have you ever seen anyone on social media or anyone that's ever sold anything on Amazon or wherever? Yeah. So have you called them? Mm, no, I haven't. Okay. Make that call. That's risk. So call them and say, hey, I saw that you've uh, started selling those things. So can you tell me like, what should I do? Oh, yeah, yeah. You should get a Shopify account. You should do this, blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you, this sounds so simple. But it's, it's literally just doing that or nudging people to do that. Yeah. And then, then it's like, oh, wait, okay. And then you also realize that the other person was like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't know either. So this is what I did. Right. They just figured it out. And then you just realize that there's everyone out there that have started businesses and doing so many different things that started out exactly how you feel right now. Yeah. And it's just the people who took a step is where they got into more steps and more steps and more steps. And then just like people say, I made this giant leap. It's no, it's actually, I made like a thousand steps. And so when I look back, it's like, wow, this is a giant leap, but it was the thousand steps. Yeah. Baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah. But it's a step. It's, <laughs> you remember it's What About Bob, that movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but you're right. You're totally right, man. And we just had um, Shiv Gaglani, uh, one of the co-founders of Osmosis on the show. And he calls it bias toward action. So he's like, you got to have this bias toward action where if you hear something that's intriguing or interesting, you just got to, and whether it be a LinkedIn message or um, an email, you hear somebody on a podcast who has a similar idea to yours, or you think it'd be a good collaborator, you got to get them on the phone. You got to call them up and take bias toward action to help you get where you want to go. If you just kind of, eh, I don't, I'll just, you know, I'll just see what happens and I'll wait. Like that's not going to get you anywhere, you know? And it's hard. It's super hard because it is risky and you could fail. And that's what we're afraid of, right? We're afraid yeah, of failure. But, but look, but, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. But what is fail in this example? So let's go back to that retail, uh, the selling apparel. And let's say you called someone. So what if they, number one, didn't answer. Number one said, don't, don't bug me. I'm too busy. Or, or why are you asking me this? Like there's stuff online or, or they, you know, they respond and they go, no, what, what are you talking about? Like, I have a whole team to do this. 
right? What if yeah. what if any of those answers happened? That's like, okay, thanks. And and so that would number one, that would stop a lot of people. It'd be like, oh gosh, that was traumatic. <laughs> but I'll tell yeah. you what, that trauma, if we call that traumatic, I mean, that should happen. Should happen every single day to us. Yeah. You're not pushing, you're not really getting you should put your yourself in a place where you have these no's and annoyances. I mean, it doesn't have to be annoyances, but I guess I'm a little jaded now. I, I, I get I get this a lot now. You know, I knock on a lot of doors and people sometimes slam it shut, but that's okay. It, the people who just keep knocking are the people who make progress. Right. Uh, again, quote, take risk, and then they make, make breakthroughs. Yeah. That's it. That's how you grow. And I, yeah. I, again, I, I, to your point, I think our position world, many times we don't have to do that, but I actually think that is the barriers we feel around us. And when we call it burnout and we call it lack of fulfillment, we call it, I want to make a radical change. It's because we're not doing that. Yeah. And I, I think like going into medical school, everyone always, I, I never was told that, hey, when you become a physician, you're, you're going to need other sources of fulfillment. You're going to need to continue to grow. That's what I tell everybody, like every time I can from our own physician community, medical students, residents, even pre-med, uh, undergraduates. I just like to tell people it's a great field. There's a lot of value in it, but just know that there's four or five other things you want to continue to do and grow and just make sure you invest in that. And, and you know, that, that is an essential thing. Yeah. I think our community needs to hear. Yeah. Especially if you want to make changes, big changes in healthcare, I think just even just getting a medical degree at the very least gives you some perspective, you know, and, and helps you understand, you know, the pain points of medicine to, to then innovate. I want to give, we're, we're wrapping up on the hour. I want to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about Lao Capital. We, we've touched on it uh, at points, but I want you to kind of tell the audience about what kind of companies Lao invests in and maybe some examples, some success stories of physician entrepreneurs. And for, for the physician entrepreneur listener, how Loud Capital kind of works. Yeah. So Loud Capital was a venture capital firm I co-founded in 2015. And it started out when I met a bunch of entrepreneurs who were underfunded. And I saw an opportunity to invest in them myself as an angel investor. But I had a lot of people around me that were interested in investing in these great entrepreneurs. And so as I was growing SmileMD and trying to network and learn and, and you know, again, getting doors closed in, in my face, I realized that there was a lot of other entrepreneurs who were doing great things, purpose-driven companies. And, and so I like to translate the physician world of ethics of, of doing good for people into investing in entrepreneurship where I invest and we invest in companies that where people are solving real problems and doing beneficial things for people, not just taking market share away and trying to make money only. It's making yeah. money while solving real problems. Right. And so we started a fund to, to help fund these entrepreneurs, had investors who were interested in investing in these early startups at the time. And that started growing. We started having multiple venture capital funds, which are industry agnostic. So it's not just healthcare. In fact, I got so refreshed by learning about all these other industries from hydrogen energy, technology, SaaS businesses, manufacturing, obviously some healthcare. Um, and so we don't have a lot of physicians that we've invested in just because our funnel is so wide and we have a lot of non-physicians who uh, apply for funding. Um, but our, our strategy is when we invest, it's capital. And then there's many other ways for us to not only mitigate risk, but to, again, optimize 
the founding team or the entrepreneurs, and, and again, that's the kind of the common theme, is if we can optimize them, help knock off any obstacles that they're going to have, because they will have many, how can we ensure there's some success? Mm-hmm. And so from a fund standpoint, it's, it's a great uh, philosophy for investors who are interested in investing in venture capital because they know we're going to be very active. And that's where Loud Capital, the name came from, being loud and active versus there's a lot of silent investors out there where they place bets in the venture capital industry and some fail and some succeed and there's a lot of money to be made. But what yeah. if you can be active and help mitigate the risk of all these investments that you have because you care about them? Right. And even if there's some small wins, that's fine. There's small wins and big wins. And yeah. so, and, and, and very early on, we realized that venture capital was more niche, especially being in the Midwest. So we started offering other types of investments such as revenue financing, also known as merchant cash advance. Uh, we now offer cryptocurrency. We offer life settlement. So we're essentially alternative investments. And so when there's folks who want to invest and, and make money a little bit more conservatively with one year, three year terms, or they want to go a little bit higher risk, a little bit longer term in the venture funds, we offer that. So Loud Capital is essentially an alternative investment firm. We have offices in Chicago, Columbus, and Raleigh, and we just like onboarding new investors, existing investors, family offices, institutions. And then on the, on the flip side, we invest in purpose-driven companies. We have about 60 companies to date. Hmm. We've had three exits already. Some investors have made money from the venture side. Um, there's investors that make money in our other um, shorter term kind of dividend paying funds. Yeah. And with regards to physician investor, I'll tell you one that's been really exciting to watch is uh, one called Radiant Oximetry. An anesthesiologist started that. It's a non-invasive uh, fetal heart monitor. And so if, if anyone knows in the OB-GYN world, uh, fetal heart monitors. I mean, we, we basically look at those like they are literally the baby screaming. It's like anything's right. wrong. Let's go to the OR. Let's run. Right. And we make these judgments uh, for C-sections and emergent anything based on it, but they're so bad. Like the monitors are antiquated. There's yeah. so many false positives. And, and so this technology is external and non-invasive. It's, it's almost like an oximeter uh, instead of indirectly looking at the baby's heart, we're actually looking at the oxygenation. And so we invested early, we followed on. Um, Neil Ray is the, is the founder of it uh, on the West Coast and, and he's great. And, and I've learned a lot from him and uh, he's a great example of, of putting himself out there. Yeah, and is, is it mostly med tech of these 60 companies or what? No, what's no, it's the- actually pretty industry agnostic. And so we have um, education, education tech, hydrogen energy, we have yeah, we, we have a lot of different companies. I would say we have a, a good section of healthcare, probably about 20% are healthcare. Yeah. Um, that but we that have hydrogen a, car in Columbus, is that guy, that's one of them, right? That's one of it, um, yeah. one of them. Um, we were the first investors back in 2015. And to give you an example of, uh, this is called Hyperion Motors, if anyone wants to look that up, that the entrepreneur said, I have this hydrogen technology based on a couple different R&D divisions that I'm going to put together to make a cargo a thousand miles on one charge. And after we laughed for a few minutes, we're like, are oh, you crazy, man? You're crazy. <laughs> and we, uh, we, we did some diligence, got to know him. And a few years later, and we, we had continued, continued to fund him from our funds. He, his car went a thousand and sixteen miles and it's a three minute charge. And he just announced a huge deal with jobs, Ohio here. He's going to, he was in orange County. He's going to, create jobs and build a factory to basically help fuel the next hydrogen economy. 
And his goal was to to get your attention with this thousand miles. Yeah. But he doesn't want to be an automotive company. He's just like, this is what hydrogen can do. Yeah. So that's one yeah. example of just true innovation, something that can be accessed for energy. When you think, think about off-grid housing globally, and you can power it up with hydrogen energy, which is clean, but really efficient. Right. I mean, it's game changing. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think that's a, that's a solid place to, to end it. Naveen, really appreciate you coming on the show. Looking forward to getting this one out. It's funny because I actually have Krishna coming up next with a, an episode on staffing the OBL. Oh, nice. But, uh, you know, it's it great to connect. Any last thoughts for the listener? Any, any advice for the, for the, you know, the physician entrepreneur or investor? Sure. So in the end, uh, I'm a person who, who got inspired by some other folks and took action. As we said, it took some steps. And that's all I say for, for, for all of you out there, you know, whether it's inspiration from our own community or outside, everyone starts at the same line and, and you already have a head start being a physician and working so hard. So, so don't let kind of your own minds be an obstacle for you. Um, I think the book I wrote talks a lot about the challenges I had, but I kept going, raising funds, having investors, building companies, and then what I think, you know, our own community can do for themselves. So I hope the book is helpful to you, but I actually think there's just a lot of great inspiration and motivational things out there to, to use as positive energy. So keep your head up and keep moving forward. All right. Appreciate it again to the audience. It's Physician Underdog, and we will uh, have a link to it, uh, the Amazon link to it on in our show notes. Naveen, awesome, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Look forward to connect with you in Columbus someday. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ann Dang, social media and PR by Chi Dang, and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.